I want to say good morning to you all. What another blessed opportunity we have to come together to worship with the saints, to worship our God in spirit and in truth. We have been discussing this month the topic of judgment, the topic of judgment. On last week, we opened up this discussion declaring and discussing the righteous judgment of God. You may think back to the book of Second Thessalonians, where we derived last week's theme. You may remember there in the book of Second Thessalonians, and if you note the first chapter, you may remember what Paul was saying in verses 3 through 5. How many times as he opens up his epistles, he explains the thanksgiving. How he says, we are bound to thank God in verse 3. God always for you, brethren, as it is meet because that... Your faith grows exceedingly and the charity of every one of you all towards each other. It abounds so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and the faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you would endure. But in verse five, making reference to these very persecutions and tribulations, that the Christian would endure, you would see in verse 5, this is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. In other words, Paul is saying that the fact that you are suffering, the fact that you are enduring tribulations and persecutions for the cause of Christ, for the kingdom of God, would actually be the manifest token of the righteous Judgment of God. Paul would go on to explain that even though there are individuals troubling you, there is one day going to be a day where there is going to be a recompense. There is going to be vengeance taken on those that would trouble you in Christ Jesus. It is a beautiful thing when we properly understand the judgment of God. When we properly understand how we are to apply even our or the knowledge of that judgment to our own judgment, how that we need to be proactive in our own lives to be able to judge that which is evil and which is good. If we spend our time, if we spend our days in this, as the Corinthians writer would write in first Corinthians, the second chapter at about verses 14, 15 and 15, explaining that there is a spiritual man who judges all things Yet he himself is judged of no man. Having the proper mindset of taking the word of God, being able to apply it to our own lives so that we not only could not be judged of any other, but when that judgment day comes, as the writer would say in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter at verse 10, that we are all to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We can go into that day with rejoicing. We can go into that day with the proper mindset, knowing that we have spent our whole lives judging our own selves so that we could be the spiritual beings that we need to be. Today, for a short while, we're going to be talking about justice and judgment. God setting up justice and judgment with individuals who are after his own heart, with individuals who sought 
to do his will. I think all the way back to the book of Genesis in Genesis, the 18th chapter, the first individual that we see in this regard, how God commends this man, Abraham. You might remember in Genesis, the 18th chapter in the context, God is giving a promise to Abraham. God is promising him that there are going to be many nations blessed by him. God is even more specifically promising him that he is going to receive a child of promise. This being such a abstract concept to Abraham's household, his wife, Sarah, would even laugh about this. But I look at what God was saying of Abraham. He said in verse 17, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surety be a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. The reason we get some context in verse 19, it says, for I know him that he will command his children and his household after him and that they shall keep the way of the Lord. This man, Abraham, receiving this promise before even having that child of promise, before even having Isaac and bringing him into this world. Sarah being barren. Abraham's receiving this promise that he is going to be a father of a great and mighty nation. Not only that, but that he's going to command his children and his household after him. What beauty. God being able to pick Handpick his man, Abraham, because he knows how he's going to order his house. He knows how he's going to teach and command those that are with him. It says to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Abraham was going to do justice and judgment with his household. God understanding the type of man he was. God understanding his character and his integrity. God understanding how he was going to order his household. He chose him to be a man that was going to be a father of many nations. As we go a little bit deeper in the biblical narrative, you may remember the next man, that man, King David. And King David, according to Second Samuel, the eighth chapter, in 2 Samuel, the 8th chapter, you might remember this man who would reign over the kingdom of Israel after that man saw. But in 2 Samuel, the 8th chapter, this mighty man of valor, David, was set up as he would in chapter 8 of 2 Samuel be a man to be able to smite the Philistines as he subdued them and he would take cities out of the hand of the Philistines. He would go on to smite Moab. He would measure them with the line, casting them down to the ground. Even the two lines measured, he put to death. And one full line he kept alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. We see this mighty man, David, who was able to triumph. We remember all of the letters and the Psalms, rather. He would write, glorifying God on this behalf, how he would be able to triumph over his enemies. But if you think a little bit deeper and you go a little bit deeper in second Samuel, the eighth chapter, you would see a similar characteristic to that of Abraham in second Samuel, the eighth chapter specifically 
At verse number 15, the Bible would say, And David reigned all, or he reigned over all Israel. And David executed in his reign judgment and justice unto all his people. This is important. As we study this topic today, we must understand as the children of God, as those belonging to Christ and his kingdom, we must understand that we have been put on this earth to execute judgment and justice. Just like Abraham was going to order his household, just like that man David would execute judgment and justice as he reigned those 40 years over Israel, we too must understand that it's judgment and justice we must attain. I think about even that man that would come after David and reign over Israel, that man, King Solomon, the son of David, if you just go really quickly to the book of first Kings and the book of first Kings would explain a very similar trait to that of David. You might remember that in first Kings, the 10th chapter, this man, Solomon in his reign, the abroad, or excuse me, the noise would go abroad about how his kingdom was ordered. In First Kings, the 10th chapter, you may remember that a fame went out to the entire world about the justice and the judgment of King Solomon. So much so that the queen of Sheba would hear of the matter. In First Kings, the 10th chapter, we begin to read in verse one, it says, and when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. In other words, the simple renown of what Solomon would be doing wouldn't suffice. She had to hear it for herself. She came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices, which very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all of her questions. There was not anything hid from the king. And when he told her not, or which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all of Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and the cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. She became exhausted when she was able to marvel at what King Solomon was able to do. When she was able to look at his kingdom, when she would, would be able to ask questions and hear of the great wisdom that he had. It says in verse six that she said to the king, it was a true report that I heard in my own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. However, I believe not the words until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, half was not told me thy wisdom and thy prosperity exceeded the fame in which I heard. Happy are thy men. Happy are these servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. Then look at this queen, this queen of a Gentile nation, being able to behold this man of God, being able to look at the wisdom and the prosperity in which he had in his reign in his, and in his kingdom was able to glorify God on that behalf. Looking at verse nine. This same queen of Sheba would say, blessed be the Lord thy God, which delights in thee to set thee up on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loves Israel forever. Therefore made he the king to do judgment and to do justice. Seeing this pattern with Abraham, with David, 
even with Solomon. Then getting a little bit of insight of how, how the outside world would be able to behold these individuals to see the similar trait that they were able to execute judgment and justice in their household, in their reign as kings over Israel. This was very, very important. We go a little bit deeper. And as we think about the world's issue today, when we think about all that is going wrong in the world I suppose it's because individuals are seeking justice and judgment, but they don't know how to find it. They're looking for justice and judgment in all of the wrong places. They're looking for the R to be able to do for them what God is supposed to do for them. They're looking for the D to be able to do for them what God is supposed to do for them, which is to say the red or the blue, perhaps the Republican or the Democrat, perhaps various kings, perhaps various presidents. They're looking in the wrong places. The similar theme with all these men is they had the right relationship with God. They relied on God to be able to deliver them from enemies. They relied on the word of God to be suffice in how they would order their steps. When we think about the Queen of Sheba being able to marvel at Solomon's wisdom, you may think about what we even can do in our own lives if we properly execute justice and judgment. I think a little bit deeper. Don't you remember what that man Solomon would say? Don't you remember what that man Solomon would say? Thinking about how the world would look at justice and judgment, why they would grow wearied, why they would not be able to understand the true righteousness that God has given us. They're struggling with finding what he is or what he has for them to do. People every single day get frustrated with the justice and judgment maybe that's happening in our own nation. They're so fixated on what would happen to the oppression of perhaps the poor or specific individuals. But I remember King Solomon would write something about this many, many years ago. If you go really quickly to the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter, to understand how the world is regarded and the frustration that would arise through a misappropriation of justice and judgment, through a perversion of justice and judgment perhaps constituents of a said country or said city, a said nation would grow to have to fail to have faith in their leaders. But look at Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter. As Solomon in the context is declaring all the vanity that is in the world. You might remember Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter, specifically in verse number eight. It says, if you see the oppression of the poor, and the violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. In other words, what Solomon is explaining here is, don't get so caught up in what's going on. Don't get so caught up in perhaps the oppression of the poor, because there's someone that's regarding There's someone that's looking on. There's individuals higher than those rulers that are still looking on at the matter. Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. He would continue to say the king himself is served by the field. He loveth silver and shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with his increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. 
And what good is there to the owners thereof saving the beholding of them with their eyes? In other words, I believe the Ecclesiastes writer here is explaining that you shouldn't be so focused on the riches or the abundance of which one has or the lack which another has. You shouldn't be so focused on perhaps the silver and gold according to this world as if that's going to bring about the proper justice and judgment to one's life. We need to be focused on the true riches which are laid up for us in Christ Jesus. We need to be focused on the riches and the promises that God the Father has given us even before the world began. When I think a little bit deeper about what the Ecclesiastes writer would say, let's look now in the book of Proverbs. Let's look in the book of Proverbs this time. This time we're noting Proverbs, the 21st chapter. And in Proverbs, the 21st chapter, making reference to how we ought to be focused, making reference to what we ought to be doing. I believe this notion is important for us, even as Christians in Proverbs, the 21st chapter. We see here in verse number three, the Bible would say in Proverbs 21 at verse number three, to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Before we go to offer up the sacrifice of fools, before we go to offer up the sacrifice in which we think is permitted, we need to be focused on doing justice and judgment in our own lives. That's why I think about on what we just cited earlier in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, how the spiritual man judges all things, yet he himself is judge of no man. You're spending your time. You're spending your time being able to reign in your life through justice and judgment. You're spending your time focused on your household or how you ought to be able to execute justice and judgment therein. Of course, that starts with you. But the Proverbs writer would be explaining here to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. We know how serious the Lord takes his sacrifices. Nadab and Abihu should have known that in Leviticus, the 10th chapter. The Lord takes his sacrifice very serious. But what the Proverbs writer is explaining, this same writer who the queen of Sheba was lauding, this same writer who she was explaining and she had heard the fame of him. He's explaining here that to do justice and judgment in our own lives, the Lord, it's it's more acceptable unto the Lord to do that than to sacrifice. We need to be able to apply that properly. The only way we can apply that properly to do judgment and justice in our own lives is to look on that man, Christ Jesus. Look on that man, Christ Jesus, who the Old Testament was testifying of. All the way back in the book of Jeremiah, the 25th or 23rd chapter, specifically at verse number five, making reference to that righteous branch that was going to come into the world. Much like what brother Herb just read unto your earring just a little bit ago in Isaiah, the ninth chapter and Isaiah, the ninth chapter, Isaiah, the ninth chapter, making reference to this Christ, which is to come into the world. Says for us unto a child is born in Isaiah, the ninth chapter at verse number six, a child is born unto us. A son is given the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
As we look at the Old Testament scriptures, which were given for our learning, which were given according to Romans, the 15th chapter at verse number four, so that we through patience and through comfort, we might have hope. We might have hope in this Christ Jesus, which is to come into the world to establish a kingdom of righteousness, of justice and of judgment. When we look at that man, Christ Jesus, if we want to understand what the proverbial writer would say in Proverbs, the 21st chapter, at verse number three, that we ought to do justice and judgment before even wanting to put our hand to the sacrifice. We must understand who this man, Christ Jesus is, what he came in this world to do, how he came into this world to sacrifice his own life on behalf of all of us. So much so that he would have to go and endure man's judgment. I remember over there in John, the 18th chapter. In John, the 18th chapter, as he was taken from hall to hall, he was taken to be scourged by Pilate, being tested there, asked whether or not he was a king. You might remember that Pilate, as he whipped him there, he would question him, asking him of his kingdom in the judgment hall, asking him who he was. But Christ, to fulfill the scripture, he opened up his mouth, not a word. I think about over there in Acts, the eighth chapter, as Philip, who was an evangelist, was speaking about this very Christ Jesus. The reason Philip, the evangelist, was speaking about that very same Christ Jesus is he would come unto a man, an Ethiopian eunuch. And he would hear him reading out of the book of Isaiah. But if you remember what he was reading, the Ethiopian eunuch would explain to him, he, he, he doesn't understand it all. He actually explains to Philip, how can I understand it except some man guides me? I'm in Acts the eighth chapter right now, looking at verse number 31 and following. In the place of the scripture in verse 32, which he read was this. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before the shearer. So he opened up his mouth, not... In his humiliation, Acts the 8th chapter and verse number 33. Connect that with Isaiah the ninth chapter, specifically at verse number 7. That this Lord that was going to come into this world was going to do justice and judgment. In Acts the 8th chapter at verse number 33, in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Then the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom does this prophet speak? Of himself or some other man. As the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip are discussing what would transpire in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, specifically at verses 5 through 8, they're reading this. They're understanding that the suffering servant was going to come into this world. The Ethiopian eunuch, so with all humility, understood he didn't understand all that he was reading. He asked the Philip to explain to him what was going on. Philip would in turn just simply preach to him Jesus, Jesus the Christ. This wonderful counselor, this prince of peace, as the book of Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter would say. Behold, in verse number five, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell in safety. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. This same man, Jesus Christ, in his humiliation, Acts 8 and 33, his judgment was taken away. He was there before Pilate. He was there before Caiaphas. 
He was there before Herod. He was there before all of those individuals having to answer on behalf of his teaching. The Jews would conspire against him, saying that he made himself to be the son of God. He didn't make himself to be the son of God. He is the son of God. He was sent into this world to fulfill the will of his father. He would say that time and time again, making reference to all those individuals that would oppose him. All those individuals that were resting in David. All those individuals that were resting in Abraham being their father. I'm thinking about John the 8th chapter and John the ninth chapter. But Jesus is explaining to those individuals, wait a minute. You're your father's son. You're your father's son because you have not understood me. You have not heard me. You commit sin. He would explain in John the 8th chapter at verse 21. If you die in your sins where I am, you cannot come. They weren't able to understand what he was saying. This man that was to bring in justice and judgment was establishing a new covenant. He was going to establish that new covenant through his blood, the blood that he shed. Nevertheless, he had some teaching to do because his teaching would bring about the proper judgment and justice into this world. This man, Christ Jesus, who they did esteem not again in Acts, the eighth chapter, verse 33, in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. They humiliated him. They mocked him. They stripped him naked. They whipped him. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. What more humiliating thing could happen to a man? They put a reed in his hand and said, all hell, king of the Jews. They took that same reed and they took it out of his hand and they beat him over the head with it. Mercilessly. This all happened before they would put railroad spikes through his hands and through his feet. They would put him on a cross to just suffer there in shame. Took him six hours to expire. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. This suffering servant, like a lamb before the slaughter and a sheep before the shearer is dumb, which is to say has no clue what's going on. He opened up his mouth, not a word. But this same man, Christ Jesus, knew what was going on. That's why he was teaching in his ministry. There's going to be a time where he was going to have to go away. He understood that he was going to have to go to the cross. That's why he's suffering in his prayer to God the Father in John the 17th chapter. He's going through that agonizing moment, understanding that he is going to have to be put to death. Nevertheless... When we as Christians properly understand who this man Christ Jesus is. Before we even go to put our hands to sacrifice, we must first acknowledge that we must do justice and judgment in our life. And the only way to do the proper justice and judgment in our life is not to be focused on what the president is doing, not to be focused on what kings of nations are doing, not to be focused on what the mayor or the governor is doing, but it's to be focused on what Christ Jesus has done. How he went to the cross for us, how he died on our behalf, how he knew no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth. That's what declared him by the spirit of holiness to be the son of God. As he was placed in a borrowed tomb after he expired on that cross, after he shed that blood to purchase the church, as the Bible would say in Acts, the 20th chapter at verse 28, he was begotten again from the dead. He was begotten again from the dead so that just as like he was raised up from the dead, we can be raised up from the dead. If we focus on Christ Jesus, if we focus on how he brought justice and judgment into this world, 
how he's trying to order his own house, just like that man Abraham, trying to order his own house after him, reigning not just over Israel, but reigning over the entire world to execute judgment and justice. When we focus on Christ Jesus, we can be found worthy, found worthy to suffer persecutions, tribulations and persecutions. But we don't look at those tribulations, persecutions and suffering as anything that's greater than the glorious riches which are to come through ordering our steps in justice and judgment properly. When we understand the promises of God, we understand who his son is, understand why his son came into this world. We can properly be those wise individuals that the Proverbs writer would discuss. Think about all the way how the book of Proverbs would start. Proverbs, the first chapter this time. In Proverbs, the first chapter, the first thing Solomon would say, he says in verse two, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive instruction of wisdom, of justice, of judgment and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning. A man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. When we look at the word of God, we understand that there's justice, there's judgment, there's equity, there's wisdom, there's instruction in it. And because of that, we can humble ourselves to want to adhere, to want to follow after the will of God. It's a continual process as we continue daily to judge all things. As we continue, according to Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verse 14, using this word to discern between the good and the evil in our lives so that we can properly apply it so that one day we can go into the judgment seat of Christ rejoicing, rejoicing that we were able to commit ourselves faithful to all that God had committed to us. What we need to do to execute judgment and justice in our lives before we even Think about doing that properly. We must first understand that we need to obey the gospel. And in order to obey the gospel, you have to hear the gospel. You have to hear what Jesus Christ has done for you. Hear how he would receive the judgment of these wicked kings. That wicked Pilate, according to Luke, the 13th chapter, who mingled the blood of the sacrifices, right, with the people. And he was mingling them in a way that was insufficient and that was improper. This same man, Pilate, would have to judge Christ. But this same man, Pilate, was ready to release him. But it was his own kindred. It was his own brethren that wanted to see his demise. But what beautiful thing that God understood this plan from the beginning of the world. The Jews thought they were so smart. But God had this plan from the beginning of time. That he would send his son into this world to be able to establish a king. Establish a kingdom of righteousness, of judgment, and of justice. We too, as Christians, need to understand that. In order to obey the gospel, we have to hear what Christ Jesus has done for us. Hear that he suffered, he bled, and died for our behalf. That through his blood, we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Why do we need redemption? We need to be bought back unto God. We need this reconciliation. That's what Paul would discuss in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. That he has this ministry of reconciliation. It's this whole process of being reconciled or brought back unto God. Isaiah, the 59th chapter specifically at verse number two says it's our sins that separate us. It's our iniquities that separate us and give us distance between God and us. But we need to be bought back. We are bought back 
by the precious blood of His Son. He has redeemed us. It's the Word of God. It's the blood of His Son that has redeemed us. It's not corruptible things like gold and silver that can redeem us, that brings about justice and equity. It's the blood of Christ. We need to hear that gospel. We need to believe it. We need to believe that He got up from the grave three days later. We need to believe 40 days after that he stepped on a cloud and he is right now at the right hand of God. We need to believe that he's coming back into this world to execute justice and judgment, to take vengeance on all those that obey not God and obey not the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, according to Second Thessalonians, the first chapter, verses seven through nine. We need to believe that's happening and that will happen and that is to come. We've got to hear the gospel. We have to believe it with all our hearts. We have to come repenting of our sins. The same discussion of Pilate in Luke, the 13th chapter at verse number three, except you repent. Sins, missing the mark, transgressing what God has asked you to do. Fallen short of the glory of his will. What we need to do is we need to repent of those things. After we've repented of those things, we need to come confessing that Jesus Christ is the son of God. That's the same thing that the Ethiopian eunuch would confess in Acts, the eighth chapter. He said, I believe. He came to the conclusion that there's water. What does hinder me from being baptized? Philip, you've preached Jesus to me. I understand that this suffering servant that Isaiah is talking about is actually Jesus the Christ. I I, I understand that. You've preached Jesus to me. So much so that I'm concluding that, oh, I need to be baptized, fully submerged into water for the remission of my sins. Why? Because I get access to the blood of Christ. There's water. What does hinder me from being saved is what the Ethiopian eunuch would ask. He says, if thou believe this, Ethiopian eunuch would respond. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. That's the only thing you need to confess. Having repented, having believed, having heard the gospel. Then you go down in the watery grave of baptism. When you're baptized into Christ, you're baptized into his death. That's what we've been talking about in Romans, the sixth chapter. In Colossians, the second chapter at verse number two, by baptism, you're buried with him. You're buried with him. That's the circumcision made without hands. By the faith and the operation of God, you are brought back out of the watery grave of baptism. According to Romans, the sixth chapter at verse four and five, to walk in the newness of life, to be able to bring forth fruit unto God. Just as Jesus got up from the grave, you get up from the grave of baptism. What dies in baptism? It's that old man of sin. But you're risen to walk in the newness of life. And when you're baptized, you're baptized into that one body. First Corinthians, the 12th chapter at verse 13. That one body is the church. Ephesians, the first chapter at verse 22 and 23. That church has a name. Acts, the 28th chapter in verse 28. It's the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. It wasn't God, the father. It was God, the son. Last I checked, God, the son's name is Christ. And his name is Jesus. It is the church of Christ. That's why Paul would write in Romans 16, 16, salute one another with the holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. If you're not a part of that one church, now's the time. If you're not a part of that one church, the question is, unto what then were you baptized? You can't be baptized in any other. In Acts, the fourth chapter, at verse number 12, it says that there is no other name. Paul would say in Ephesians, the third chapter, at verse 15, I bow my knees Unto God and the Father of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, and whom the whole of whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named. We're named after Christ. It's Christ's blood. It's Christ's body. It's Christ's church. We're to walk in the newness of life so that we can reap those eternal blessings, which God before the world began promised to us. It's impossible for him to lie. 
Titus, the first chapter, verse number two, discusses that hope of eternal life. Those individuals that stopped Peter on the day of Pentecost when he's explaining the gospel message said, men and brethren, what must we do in order to be saved? This is the salvation discussion. Peter stopped and said, repent every last one of you. Acts two and verse 38. Be baptized for the remission of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And this promise is not only to you, but it's unto you. It's unto your children. It's unto all that are far off. This promise of the Holy Ghost. The Bible would say in Romans, the sixth chapter, specifically at verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, but it's the gift of God that is eternal life. We have eternal life promised unto us. Let us understand the justice and judgment that is in this world that we can attain that we can understand, that we can now apply to our lives so that even people that are on the outside, like the Queen of Sheba did to Solomon, they can look at our lives and they can say, oh, they can rejoice in God the Father because of the way that we execute justice and judgment with our own families in our own lives and how we are living lives that are after a godly manner. That is the lesson. The question is, are you washed? Are you washed in the blood? If you haven't been yet washed in the blood of Christ, What does hinder you? What does hinder you from being saved? What does hinder you from obeying the gospel? What does hinder you from having all of your sins remitted and washed away in the watery grave of baptism? Let us come and stand and sing a song of the Savior's invitation.